You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eduardo Machado is the author of over 40 plays, including The Cook and Havana, His Waiting. His new book is Tastes Like Cuba, An Exile's Hunger for Home. It's written with Michael Dimitrovich. Thank you for joining me, Eduardo. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Eduardo, you have had a really uh, incredible life. You were born in Cuba in 1953. Your family was well-to-do, and when you were a small child, your government was overthrown. Yes. Uh, tell me how that felt to you as a, as a child. When the government is overthrown, well, initially it felt wonderful because everyone in my family wanted Fidel to be in power because that, what everybody in Cuba forgets is that they wanted to get rid of Batista desperately. So I think the day that Fidel marched into Havana was the happiest day of my life <laughs> in many ways. And of my family, there's nothing like overthrowing a government and feeling that you were part of it. Uh, the problem is that it quickly Fidel started taking over businesses, some of them my family's businesses, and the joy turned for them into anxiety and sorrow, you know. So it was a very chaotic year, from nine, two years really, from 1959 until 1961, and when the Bay of Pigs failed, which at that point my family was working for the Bay of Pigs, uh, for the people that were coming in to try to get Cuba back. Um, it's a very chaotic and exciting time. It changes you forever because nothing is solid or, or real. Everything is always changing. And, uh, but I feel lucky that I experienced the revolution. Not a lot of people do. You know? And then we came to America, which was its own kind of revolution. A lot of what the book's about is coming to America and growing up in L.A. and what that all meant. Now, you came over on what were called the Peter Pan flights. Could you explain right. what those were? People in Cuba were told that their kids were going to be, were going to be sent to Russia uh, to be programmed as communists. And um, the United States, the Catholic Church really, offered uh, the families that if they send their kids here they would be put in Catholic boarding schools, and Fidel agreed to it. So he gave the kids temporary three-month visas to visit the United States, of course, knowing that we'd never come back. And uh, the kids were not put in boarding schools. I was very lucky because my uncle and my aunt were here, so my brother, who was five, and I, who was eight, got to live with them. But many of these kids got put in orphanages and... Uh, grew up in terrible circumstances, and some of them never saw their parents again. Some of them, like myself, did. And so there was an archbishop in Miami, a Cuban archbishop, who would go on the Voice of America and say, we will take care of your children. You have to send them here, or they will be communists. And about 16,000 kids came over that way. Wow, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how it felt when you arrived and moved in to live with your aunt and uncle. Did you know that that was going to be 
essentially for I the rest of your life? I knew that I was going to live with my aunt and uncle, but no, I didn't know that I was going to be there for a long time. My, my dad told me that I was, he was sending me there for the weekend. Um, and, um, well, I lived a pretty affluent life in, 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 in Cuba, and my aunt and uncle were living in a bungalow in Hialeah with their kids. And my aunt was becoming a Jehovah Witness, and it was, I didn't speak English, and there weren't a bunch of Cubans there at the time, because it was October 30th, 1961. And so I was put in a public school and, and learn English and try to communicate and try to take care of my brother, who was five. And we lived on spam, garbasso, beans, and rice. Is that we got army rations to live on because it was before welfare. And so it was a pretty grim existence. Well, this speaks to uh, the presence in your book of lots of recipes and food. Could you tell yeah. me how they I, found their way in there? Well, spam, there's a spam recipe in there. I, from that moment on, kept searching for the Cuban food that I had remembered in Cuba. And it took me a long time to find it again. Uh, actually, not till I went back to Cuba and went to a Paladar. And a woman at that Paladar was cooking the way I remember people cooked in the 50s. And that was the reason why I wanted to write the book, because I wanted to bring these recipes back, because they sort of, in many ways, disappeared in America, because in America, immigrants tend to make their food spicier so it tastes more like home. And in Cuba, they had been rationed for so many years that they didn't really cook in the same way that 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 I remembered, except in this one house. And I wrote a a play about her called The Cook, which is now playing at the Goodman Theater in Chicago and at Seattle Rep in Seattle. And um, and wrote the book. Uh, someone saw the play and said, "You should really write a book about food." And I thought, what a great idea. So I, so I did with Michael Dimitrich. How did um, Michael get involved in the project? Uh, I lived with him, and I knew that I couldn't write a, a Well, I've never written a book. <laughs> to write plays. And I also, he comes from a restaurant family, and I, and I knew that he'd be able to really help me figure out all these recipes. You know, family recipes are a weird thing. You have to really test them 100 times and help me decide what part of my life I wanted to tell. Uh, it's hard to tell your life because you can't tell all of it. You can only tell certain sections of it. Uh, and so uh, when I initially, when I was approached, I said, you know, and they agreed that it was a good idea to do it with someone, so we did it together. Um, uh, it's good to, be, to have someone focus you about what you should be writing about, because if not, it's just too overwhelming. Could you talk about using food to map your life? That's a really interesting way to do that, but well, I, I can I understand that. food because, you know, in Cuba we ate a certain kind of food, and we got to America, we ate spam. Then we got to California, California, L.A. I grew up in Canoga Park, and at that time there weren't any Latin ingredients. Goya hadn't been invented, so my mother had to sort of figure out ways to make things taste Cuban. You know, for example, Cubans eat bread of steak, and she could never figure out what cut of meat in the American market would be the 
cut of meat that could be sliced thin enough to be made into bread of steaks. It took her a long time to figure that out. What was it? Because that sounded, I heard, I read about that recipe and it sounded delicious to me. It sounded delicious. <laughs> and then it's made with Cuban crackers, really. And, you know, how do you find that? Uh, but she figured out things to substitute with that tasted pretty good. Uh, we also, Cubans, weirdly enough, don't know a lot about Mexican cooking. And, well, suddenly everything that was Spanish was Mexican. So my mother invented her own kind of enchilada with tomato sauce instead of the usual ingredients. Uh, and then when I when I when I when I got married, I started eating salads, which I had never eaten in my life because Cubans hate vegetables. And I grew to love vegetables because it was L.A. in the '70s and everybody was healthy. And then I went on the Beeler diet for a long time. You know what that is? No, no, tell me. It's a, it's a health food diet where basically you drink this soup that's made out of zucchini, parsley, celery, and you grind it all together and it cleanses you, and you eat that in protein. Because Boy, I was an actor at the time and I had to be skinny. That sounds terrible. And then when I went back to New York, I started eating again because I became a playwright. So I, I really enjoyed everything that New York said I had to offer in food. You know, food is a different thing now. Food is so good everywhere now. But uh, in the 60s and 70s, it was sort of evolving, this idea of cuisine. So try to put all that into the book, all the ways that food has changed me and that I've changed along with the food, you know. It's a fascinating idea, and as I say, the recipes are just outstanding. And the I recipes will... are great. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and I worked really hard on them for a very long time. <laughs> How many pounds did you gain making writing you know this I book? Lost, I lost a hundred pounds. <laughs> you did? Wow! <laughs> <laughs> In the last year and a half, uh, when you start writing about food, you taste it, but you actually eat less. <laughs> So, yeah, it's weird. I told the book people the next book should be How to Lose Weight While You're Writing a Cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> the cookbook diet. Well, Yeah, that... the cookbook diet. <laughs> How to make it scientific. I love Cuban food. And I think that recipes are really genuine in the kind of cuisine that was Cuban food. You know, Recipes and really... Miami Herald said that I was shocked. They said how, how it was really Cuban recipes. They said how? No, and, and I said that I didn't like the food in Miami, so <laughs> I didn't think they were going to go for the book, but they really went for the book, which made me very happy because uh, I find the food in Miami too spicy. Too spicy. Now that's an interesting observation. I would have yeah, thought it's that a little bit too spicy and a little bit too salty, we'll... and it throws the flavor off. You know. We're all here in America accustomed to thinking that because American food is some usually thought of it as bland, we're always thinking that food from other countries is going to be more spicy, not more right. bland. So uh, I think we overcompensate. Instead of more flavorful, I don't think American food is bland. Um, I just think it's different, you know, especially food in San Francisco and Seattle. I think it's really exquisite food, you know. Well, food is such a, a, a memory marker, too, that you can remember making the food or, or, or eating the food or the taste of the food or the smell of the food. Those kind of chemical memories are a lot stronger than memories based on, you know, text. On yeah, on facts. And it's certainly what I use when I'm writing a play is all those sensory things rather than all the intellectual things that I'm trying to say. 
and the intellectual things come up, but they have more texture if you think about how the life was actually led. Moment by moment, day to day, smell by taste, it makes the characters richer, I think. And it's certainly how I teach people about playwriting, to use their senses rather than... Their senses will take you to the real memory and to the real voice of your characters rather than your intellectual ideas, which will be in the play anyway, because that's why you're writing it. Thank you for speaking to me, Eduardo. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.